Would you pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still that we might hear from you. Amen. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So begins the Old Testament book bearing the prophet Amos's name. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. We begin our six-week Lenten series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament here with the prophet Amos, because Amos is the oldest work of prophetic literature to be found in the Hebrew canon. An early 8th century BCE shepherd, Amos, is the first figure we know of to publicly challenge the Israelite establishment and to warn its leaders of the coming judgment of Yahweh God, this shepherd from Tekoa. Now, in identifying Amos as a shepherd, we need also to understand this. The Hebrew word used here to describe Amos as a shepherd is the same word used to describe an owner and breeder and purveyor of sheep. In other words, we ought not to think of Amos as some poor solitary figure wandering with his own small flock through the valleys. Instead, we should think of Amos as a modern-day cattle farmer or large-scale rancher. For Yellowstone fans, think of him as an Israelite John Dutton. And I clarify this about Amos at the top because... When we begin to dig into the core concern of the prophet Amos, it is instructive for us to realize that Amos himself was a man of some means. But in saying that, I am already getting ahead of myself. Because for now, I want us to turn away from Amos momentarily and turn to our gospel lesson for this morning, which comes from Mark 11. The scene where Jesus famously enters the outer court of the temple and drives out the dove dealers and the money changers. Now it's a mistake for us to read this passage and assume that what has upset Jesus here is that people are doing business at the temple. As if the problem for Jesus was simply about the mixing of commerce with religion. No, this was standard and sanctioned practice within Judaism. Seeing as the temple, along with being a place of worship, was also the central place of Israelite taxation and revenue intake. You see, there are laws all throughout the Old Testament that require the Israelites to submit an annual tax to the temple, along with an animal annual sacrifice. And with this being the case... It is then of crucial importance for us that we also understand that there was no internal revenue service to closely monitor the fair collection of these taxes, nor were there any just lending laws in the nation-state of Israel overseeing the fair sale of these sacrificial animals. 
which led, of course, to all sorts of corruption and financial exploitation, leading us now to why Jesus was so particularly indignant in this moment. He was indignant because, given the onerous expectations being placed on the common folk of Israel, the poor of Israel, as always, were being particularly taken advantage of. And how do we know that? Well, outside of remaining ancient records that tell us as much, we also know it by this, by the fact that Mark says that those whose tables Jesus overturned were the money changers and those who sold doves. Those who sold doves. Not lambs. Those who sold doves. You see, in Leviticus, the animal offering required at the temple by law was a lamb for people of means, but was a dove for people who were poor. So there in the outer court of the temple, what was happening, and what had been happening for centuries, was that sheep herders and dove farmers were setting up booths to sell animals for the annual offering. And that was all well and good. This was fully sanctioned by Scripture. But then what was happening and what had been happening for centuries was that these powerful dove farmers and these other commercial merchants and money changers were exploiting the poor who had no choice but to buy their doves and but to pay their unjust conversion fees. Do you follow that? It wasn't a problem for the people with money. It's a problem for the poor. Suffice it to say that at this time, according to ancient Near Eastern scholars, the tax and temple burden on the poor of Israel was near 70% of their net earnings. And what's more, the ones in charge of laws and of collections daily conspired to build a formal and informal system that kept the poor barely able to survive. So yes, Jesus was indignant that day, but the problem for him wasn't commerce at the temple, which is what we popularly assume. No, that was sanctioned by Scripture. Instead, the problem for Jesus was the age-old problem of human exploitation of the poor. Leading us back now to the prophet Amos. Hear this, you who buy the poor for silver and you who buy the needy for a pair of sandals. Shall not the land tremble on this account, says the prophet Amos. Oh yes, Amos, 800 years before the time of Jesus. Amos certainly understood this age-old problem of exploitation of the poor. Yes, Amos, who again was a man of some means himself, Amos certainly saw clearly what was happening in his day. That is to say, Amos saw the way that the temple authorities were using the law to extort money from the poor. And Amos saw the way that merchants and money changers were cheating and double-dealing the poor. And Amos saw the way that the disparity between the rich and the poor was enabling the rich to keep getting richer off of the poor. And so he, Amos, a man of means himself, simply could no longer abide it. And thus he prophesied, you that trample the needy. 
Will not the land tremble on this account? Now in saying all of this, it is absolutely critical that we now situate this central preoccupation of Amos, this preoccupation he had with the economic exploitation of the poor, It is crucial that we situate this within the ancient Jewish cultural and religious imagination in which he existed. You see, for someone like Amos, economic exploitation wasn't just wrong because it made others suffer and because suffering is bad. No far larger and far more comprehensively even than that, economic exploitation was wrong in the Jewish imagination because it was an intentional violation of shalom, of peace, of justice, of harmony, of universal human flourishing, of the way things were created by God to be. In the Jewish imagination, God in the beginning deemed all things very good. And thus, sin in the Jewish imagination was and is every deviation from this state of very goodness. Anything that harmed or disturbed shalom, anything that marred and violated God's design for flourishing, this was the very definition in the Jewish imagination of sin. And sin in the Jewish imagination could not be abided. Not simply because it was a matter of wrongdoing. But ultimately because God had a very good design for creation. And because wrongdoing disrupts this very good design. And because God in the Jewish imagination will not rest until creation is restored to the way it was originally designed to be. We can't understand Amos' concern with economic exploitation if we don't understand the default understanding he had of the way things ought to be and of how economic exploitation was a disturbance of that reality. You know, almost 3,000 years later, we tend to make the Old Testament prophets into cartoonish sorts of characters. That or we reduce in our imaginations what a prophet actually did. You see, Old Testament prophets, despite the popular conception of them, these folks were not principally fortune tellers. There was indeed that aspect to their work, but most times the prophets in question didn't even know that at the time. No, Old Testament prophets were not principally fortune tellers, were instead something like social commentators. People who, through a sense of divine conviction, spoke out against the unfairnesses and the injustices that they saw taking place. And to bring us closer to the main point of our sermon today, not only did these prophets level criticisms against various injustices they saw, but they also situated these injustices within their larger hope for the coming day when shalom would be fully restored, of the coming day when God would say, no more, 
and would bring swift judgment against these violations of shalom and would thereafter restore all things on earth to the original goodness for which they were intended. Things are currently wrong, an Old Testament prophet would begin by saying. And there will be divine judgment against that wrongdoing, the prophet would go on to say. But one day all that is wrong will be made right, the prophet would always conclude. Such is the narrative arc of all works of Old Testament prophecy. And again, we start here today with Amos. And for the prophet Amos, what was principally wrong was the economic exploitation of the poor. Well, as we've just discussed, by the time of Jesus, some 800 years later, things had not changed. In fact, come the time of Jesus, Shalom had not only not yet been fully restored, but things were in fact worse. The political and religious leaders were in league with the commercial executives and the high-level tradesfolk, and they were still violating Shalom by exploiting the poorest among them. And Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in human form, our divine example of embodied shalom, Jesus was not having it. And so, like the prophet Amos long before him, he too lifted his voice to draw attention to this gross disturbance of shalom. And in so doing, he staged a public demonstration that was intended to show all of us who would follow him what the coming judgment against such economic exploitation will look like. And thankfully we got the point. Except sadly I'm joking. Because 2,000 years later and we still haven't gotten the point at all. This very day, we outsource the vast majority of labor to third world countries where men, women, and children work for pennies on the dollar in order to allow us to buy consumer goods at fractional costs. This very day, we permit payday lenders to charge up to 1,900% interest on loans that they know full well the individuals and families taking out the loans will never be able to pay back which is the whole point in offering them this loan to keep them stuck forever in this financial vortex. This very day, landlords all over the world overcharge for homes and trailers and properties with broken appliances and insufficient plumbing and imploding ceilings, all while apartment complexes and other landlords find loopholes in housing laws so as to prevent such persons from ever being able to rent from them. Trust me, I know I'm a pastor. I see it all the time. I could, of course, go on and on with examples like these. For 2,800 years since the time of Amos and 2,000 years since the time of Jesus. And still in the words of Amos, we trample on the poor and we buy the needy for a pair of sandals. The point, dear family, of this Lenten sermon series is to let the Old Testament prophets remind us that having the right beliefs 
and that showing up for worship and that confessing the name of Jesus is not enough for us to be true, full followers of Jesus Christ, that instead to be a true, full, faithful follower of Jesus Christ is to believe that one day God will render judgment on all violations of shalom, and what's more, that God will ultimately restore things to the way that they were originally designed to be. Thus, the point of this sermon series is to remind us that God will do this and that because God will, we who believe in Him and follow His Son, Jesus Christ as Lord, are expected to live now in such a way that we endeavor as best we can to bring about as much shalom as we possibly can in the here and now anticipation of that coming reality. If we believe it, we will work for it. To that end, the point of today's sermon, within the larger structure of this sermon series, is to help us see clearly that for the prophet Amos, what stands in the way of divine shalom has been, and still is, the economic exploitation of the poor. And the point is not that we, in recognizing this, are suddenly called to become Old Testament prophets ourselves, or called to begin flipping display tables at supermarkets. No, instead the point is that as people who, like Amos, are relatively comfortable and financially secure ourselves, and relatively speaking, that includes all of us, that we too, like Amos, are expected to stand up for and advocate for the poor as best we possibly can. Buying products and shopping in stores that source from places with just and fair labor laws. Lobbying our elected representatives and supporting bipartisan legislation that regulates unfair lending practices. Doing the same for housing practices that are clearly corrupt and exploitative. We could go on and on with examples. The point here is simply that we have a voice and that the temple demonstration of Jesus is all the inspiration we ought to need as Christians to stand up and to use it. One day the land will tremble on account of such violations of God's shalom. And if we really believe this, then let us as Christians in advance of that day do what we can do, small though it might be, to make the land begin to tremble now in anticipation. For God's judgment is indeed coming in that right soon, and all thanks be unto God that it is. Just as all thanks be unto God that on the other side of that judgment, with shalom finally and fully restored, that all God's people, we who are rich and we who are poor in this life alike, will together drink of the same vineyards and eat of the same gardens forever, just as the prophet Amos long ago told us that we will. And all God's people said, Amen.